What up artists? My name is Dwayne Jones. I'm the creative director and founder of a lifestyle brand called Art Pays Me. This is the Art Pays Me podcast and I'm passionate about finding ways that people like you and me can make a living for ourselves off of our creativity and you know maybe we can make the world a better place at the same time. Let's get into it. Welcome to Art Pays Me. Today we have Sunil Sarwal. So Sunil, um, I first became aware of you through former guest Allison Knott, and um, she insisted that you were somebody that I needed to know. And <laughs> she's like, "You're gonna, you would love him, you would love him." And then uh, I followed you on Twitter, and the uh, the tweet game was elite, and uh, <laughs> had me in deep thought, but also laughing at the same time. So that's always a win, win for me. And um, <laughs> yeah, and then I finally met you in person at uh, at a Creative Kick event, which was yeah. E3C before, and that was uh, actually it was a live live art pays me with Elana uh, Il- and uh, Jordan. You were there. Yeah, that was and, it. Um, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. what was, do you do? Uh, okay, so uh, I'm a branding consultant, uh, for food companies. So if they're, uh, creating or launching a new food or drink product, I might help them on the branding side to figure out, uh, what they need to say about the product so that it, consumers, uh, see it and understand it and get it and are interested in it. And, uh, I'll help them to, uh, then express that brand on the packaging side of things. Uh, so that when people see it in the store, they understand what they're looking at. They want to buy it. So, uh, I work with clients, uh, mostly in Canada, uh, Ontario and, uh, Quebec, uh, and some, some local maritime companies as well. Okay, cool. And is that through small monsters, the small monsters? Yeah, that's it. It's the small, I call myself the small monsters. Yeah. (laughs) And it's just you or do you have a team? Uh, It's just me now. I used to have a team. Uh, We were in Montreal for about 10 years. We had a nice little office downtown and there was five of us. Um, We had a pretty good reputation out there. But uh, for family reasons, actually, I had to move back to my hometown here, Halifax. And uh, since then, I've just been running things on my own while I get my footing again. Oh, okay. You know what? Let's step back because I I feel like I cut you off and you're about to say something after the Allison intro. Oh, I was going to say Allison's uh, told me the same thing about you, that I needed to meet you, that that we would get along really well. And she took me to your art show, your fashion show at the library. It was one of the first events that I attended when I uh, moved here to, uh, to Halifax. Ah, okay. You know what? I think she might have mentioned that she had you there. Um, yeah. Okay. Cool. So, yeah, that's that's funny. All right. Allison, the connector. She knows a lot of people. She knows how to get people in touch with each other to to build the community. Uh, that's what I love about her. Yeah, she's so like fired up about um, just the idea of creativity and artists doing business things and and she's got like this endless energy for it a lot more energy than i do and it, 
Yeah. Yeah. Whenever I'm stuck on something like on a business thing or like this has happened, uh, I don't know how to talk to the client about it. I always email her. Um, you got a second. This is what's going on. And she always has good advice. So uh, it's been actually really a, a wonderful friendship for me. Yeah, she's great. So everyone, actually, you should check out episode nine. That's where Allison made an appearance on Art Pays Me. So, yeah, make sure you you check that out. So tell me about small monsters like I was looking at your work right and mm-hmm. the from a packaging standpoint like how like what made you kind of go that direction is that was that a like a deliberate choice or is that just it just sort of happened organically <laughs> yeah like most careers I kind of got just sort of pushed this way by currents. Um, I've been interested in design for a long time. I originally studied architecture. Uh, I wanted to do things that were, that were tangible and tactile. Uh, And I ended up getting a job. um, So I went to NASCAD and then I moved to Montreal after graduation and I ended up getting a job at Megablocks in the packaging department. Uh, And that's where I learned about packaging. And it wasn't necessarily that I had an interest in packaging. Um, it's just, it was just a job. I needed work and uh, I loved toys. Uh, I loved Lego growing up. So uh, I was happy to work there. And uh, I learned a lot uh, when I was there about the technical side and about the marketing side of uh, consumer packaging. Mm-hmm. And, and I worked for a couple other companies. And then in the crisis in 2008, I got laid off and I just started freelancing um from my living room and from there i had enough of a network that work started coming in and uh i started doing first just packaging design uh for anything and then uh packaging and branding but my passion has always been food uh not just for work i just uh i'm kind of obsessed with food i'm one of those people that i'll spend hours just wandering through the grocery store well not these days but I used to spend hours just looking at stuff I loved it so so I tried to over the years kind of focus myself more towards food and so now it's it's really just that uh food and drink uh branding and packaging uh you know what I I really got a a sense of that um based on like the way so you've got this this saying on your the home on your homepage of your site where you talk about um just this idea of people wanting to touch and feel and pick things up and that's yeah. what your your design um is is supposed to sort of convey and it's interesting that uh you'd be so effective at this because you have this genuine love for food and for that experience so it's um yeah even though these things aren't planned they i get in some ways they kind of are planned right it's it's interesting yeah it it definitely fits really well with my passions because i love working with words i love drawing uh i love working with clients um talking to them directly and i'm crazy about food so this kind of all the things that i want to do anyway all my passions and i get to do it for a living so yeah it's uh, it's worked out pretty nicely so you do all the illustration on your packaging I do most of the illustration on my packaging. If it's something that's outside of my own skill set, uh, I'll hire somebody uh, else. I'm always trying to work with other people. There's a few designers here. Um, 
there's somebody that does really beautiful hand lettered cards and I'm really trying to get a project where I can work with her. Uh, I've hired Allison actually to do some illustrations on packaging uh, in the past as well. Okay. Uh, but a lot of it uh, I, I do uh, on my own as well. Very cool. So were you the type of kid that was doodling all the time on the desk and all, and all that kind of stuff? All the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know what I, I used to, um, I, I had a, I had a few things that I always did. I always drew like a martial arts dude. <laughs> um, I always drew uh, manga eyes. And then I got to, I started to go by the moniker action man when I was in high school. <laughs> and it was because like, I was this weird martial arts kid who, um, <laughs> I used to do the, the Jean-Claude Van Damme splits in between chairs no. and all that stuff. <laughs> so I just became like action man. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's kind of still stuck. It's still my video game, uh, avatar name or whatever you want to call it but yeah i started like tagging action man on all the desks all over the school and everything <laughs> were you into comic books then too i was uh, i i got really in i started with archie comics but as yeah. from an art standpoint i was really into um i think it's dan mcfarlane if i'm not mistaken uh, okay. image comics and spawn and yeah. um then I got into manga and I I didn't become as nerdy about it as some people because I think for me, I was way more interested in just the drawing than the actual reading. So I basically, I would buy the, I would just buy the ones that had illustration styles that I thought were cool. And yeah. then I'd read them just because, but then just basically spend a lot of time trying to figure out how did they do that? person in that position how did they yeah. do those eyes how did they do the hand there so yeah oh, the hands yeah the hands and the feet yeah were you into comics uh, a bit yeah yeah it's kind of the same thing i didn't get like deeply into it but i used to love just looking at the drawings and how they did them and yeah spending a lot of time kind of tracing them and redrawing things to to try to get it right yeah yeah, there was one point where I wanted to, have, I thought that I wanted to be a comic book artist, but. Uh, that was originally what I wanted to do too, a comic book artist or a cartoonist. And at one point I just said, I don't know how I'd ever explain this to my parents. Um, <laughs> so I went into architecture instead. So were they the type that were like kind of skeptical of a creative career in general? Yeah, yeah. Anything that wasn't a doctor was never going to be good enough for them. Typical Indian parents. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get that. Um, mine were kind of like nervous in, in Bermuda. The big, in, it's like finance is like kind of the big industry there. So I think they were naturally mm. inclined to push me in that direction. But I struggled so much in high school. I think they just kind of gave up when I said <laughs> graphic design. They were like, oh, "Okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah." But my sister was a writer. She was really good at it, and she gave it all up uh, to become a doctor because they pushed her so hard. But for me, I was 
I was really bad at high school too. And I think they were just happy that it was like, okay, we don't have to worry about him. He won't be homeless. So <laughs> yeah, they kind of, yeah. But that's, yeah, that's, that's interesting though. Uh, you got, I'm wondering with the graphic design thing, is it like for me anyway, even I find with my fine art, I just really like the play of words and images together and comic books basically do that. Mm-hmm. And it just, I, I, I've seen that seems to be a, a commonality in some graphic designers. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I think that, that, that passion for, for drawing, especially it's, and it's so nice to be immersed in the work. And the nice thing about comic books is that there's so many different styles and so many different types and so many stories. It's, yeah. Uh, especially these days, it can be nice to get lost in something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So when you're in the process, so I was looking at your packaging and I see very much a close attention to detail. This is what I'm getting anyway. And yeah. like how important to you is the perfect font? Because I get the impression that this is something you put a lot of energy into. Yeah, uh, definitely. I mean, on one hand, in what I do, graphic design is the last part of it. It's the least important part because really what's key is the uh, the ideas that go into it, really the, the, the branding that goes behind it. But when it comes to the graphic design, typography is make or break. You can have a beautiful idea, but if you don't have good typography, it can be ruined visually. So when I, uh, when I had the agency, we'd get people coming in for um, sending in their, uh, their resumes and their portfolios all the time. And the two things I would always look at was their typography and how well they could express a simple, clear concept. And if they couldn't do those two things, uh, I wouldn't be interested. I wouldn't interview them. Um, because typography is 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 the key. Uh, a lot of other things you can you can learn on the job, but uh, a good eye for type is is make or break for a design. Mm. So, one thing for me from a for typography, and, I, and I'm curious if this is something for you and and for others actually is sometimes I get things from clients and the wording doesn't just it doesn't work. Do you ever find yourself becoming somewhat of a writer in those situations where you're like, you know what, maybe you should change it to be, to say this instead. Definitely. Um, Most of the projects that I'm doing um, since it's food packaging, the clients are coming to me with nothing. Sometimes they just have a food product. They don't even have a name. So I get to do the writing myself. Um, If they already have, all of the writing um that means they already have the brand in which case i usually tell them not to even hire me i say just go you know they can go find a graphic designer if they just need somebody to create a package uh so so i'm in a good position that i'm starting early enough in the project that i get to decide what those words are going to be and i make sure that that's going to work in the space and in the feeling um and create the right mood that i want anyway right so for you it's it's like about that entire conversation, not just I'm the person that makes it look good. You want to be really involved in everything. Yeah, yeah. Because food packaging is a funny thing. It's like um, a lot of um, so a lot of my clients they're not going to spend a lot of money advertising uh, for food. You know, food's very very small uh, margin. So um, the 
first time a consumer will see the food package, the food product is going to be on shelf. And you've just got a couple seconds to like catch their attention. You've got a few seconds to draw them in, to get them to pick it up and look at it. And they have to get it right away. If they don't understand what it is, they're just going to glance over it because, you know, the store is crowded, it's noisy, kids are crying, you've got to be home in time for supper. Uh, if you don't get it, if it doesn't attract you, you're just going to get the same thing you always get. So um, there's a lot of way to making it quickly and easily uh, effective. Right. I, I need to be involved right from the very beginning to make sure that that happens. Mm. Do you, you find that um, there's this sometimes struggle with uh, maybe being so minimal? Like for me, I'll, I'll put my personal experience with it. I go minimal first. That's kind of my thing. I'm like super bare bones. And then I add other elements later for the most part. Sometimes I have a an illustration or a photo in mind that I build everything around. But a lot of times if I don't, I go completely bare bones. But then it's like, okay, it's clear what it says. But is it something that people are going to be delighted by and want, you know? Yeah. So, so like there's this balance between delight and actual communicating what this thing is. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Do you ever find yourself battling that or is it more intuitive to you to just sort of know that right mix? No, I don't think it's intuitive, but I, I don't have that battle necessarily either because the way I will work is we'll figure out ahead of time what, say, the brand pillars need to be for this product so that people get it. So we might say this one needs to be maybe minimal and uh, elegant and luxurious. And so then we'll create a graphic design around it that, that is those things. But maybe we're going to say, no, this needs to feel natural and authentic and handmade, in which case we're not going to go with a minimal look. We're going to go with something that's going to be very different. And so the, the graphic design is always going to follow directly from the brand principles that we've already created. So um, so I, that's why, like, the work that you see me doing, I, they're, they're all completely different because none of them really have a style. Like, in what we do for consumer packaged goods, we can't have a, a house style. We can't have something that looks like, oh, that looks like the small monsters did it. It has to work for that product and that brand instead and we have to be kind of invisible so i can't come in ahead of time with my own preconceptions of how it's going to look back when i used to do more general graphic design um like say i'm doing posters or an invitation or a cd cover then yeah totally i would like i like this i like the style i like these colors i like these fonts and it was a lot of it was subjective a lot of it was my choice i'd be playing around with things but i don't get to do that anymore. Everything has to follow from the brand principles that we've already established with the client ahead of time. So sometimes the clients will say like, uh, yeah, I don't like this color. I don't like that. Um, and personally, I, I don't actually care um, what the client likes or doesn't like. It's all about the product and what's going to tell the story of that brand and the story of that product to help it to sell. So uh, we were working on a project once and um, it was for this, 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 uh, these vegan bites and uh, they had to look natural uh, and healthy. And we did the package and it was green and lovely because green is a natural, healthy color. And the client was like, 
I don't like the green. Can you make it white? And I was like, yeah, sure, no problem. Um, because white is also natural and healthy. And I said, look, if you had asked for orange, I would have said, no, it doesn't fit with the brand. But white is fine. It's, it's no problem. If they had said they want it to be black, I would say, no, you know, black looks sophisticated. Uh, black looks upscale, but it doesn't look natural and healthy. So it's not telling the story that we need to tell. So by building the design on the brand values, uh, it takes the subjectivity out of it and it takes the, um, the client's personal preferences out of it. Right. So one, yeah. Yeah. It gives you, it's, that's great. It's more of a, not a, I don't like to, I don't want to use the word argument, but it definitely gives you a firmer leg to stand on when you're justifying aesthetic choices. Well, you know what? Um, if it's uh, just like a subjective choice, I'll tell them uh, mm. once an interview with a client. Uh, it was like the first interview, we talked about the whole product and everything. And at the end, they were kind of like taken aback and they were like, you didn't ask us what we like. And I said, I don't care what you like. You're not a client. You know, it was, uh, it was like uh, food treats for uh, sporting dogs. And I was like, you guys don't even own dogs and you're not runners. Uh, it doesn't matter what you like. All that matters is what your market likes, what your audience likes and what they want and what they expect to see. Yeah. And you're right. Uh, that part is the frustrating thing about when you're not involved from that top to bottom process, yeah. because you often do get stuck into that subjective uh, back and forth with a client and you're only doing what they like. I've, I've been in that situation yeah. many times. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. I used to have on my wall a thing that said, uh, I'm a designer, not a screwdriver. Cause I would hate it when the client would be like, well, I want you to change this. I want you to change that. And then I would be like, well, I'm the expert. I want respect. But the truth is I didn't really have anything to back up, uh, my completely subjective choices other than I saw something here that I liked and I saw something there that I liked and, there was this pattern that I've been hoping to use and there was this typeface that I wanted to use. It was all just subjective. I was just kind of pulling it out of my butt. And uh, at least now with what I'm doing, there is a solid rationale and a reason. And if there isn't, I don't need to be married to it anymore. Yeah. You know what's interesting with that too? I find um, I, I had, I, I started to rely a lot more on um, more research to justify my stuff too. But mm -hmm. the, in the early days of Apple popularity, I remember I just personally, you know, I went to NASCAR. We were taught Swiss design uh, yeah. principles a lot. And I just liked minimalism. So mm -hmm. I used to always equate minimalism with good design. Same. I don't yeah. necessarily believe that anymore. Mm -hmm. um, but I used to always quote, like, I used to always say, oh, you should do this because look, Apple did, did this, so <laughs> therefore it's good. Um, yeah. And now but, I find clients are doing that to me, yeah, <laughs> which is interesting. They're like, yeah, I want that because Apple does it. And I think blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, you know, but for your thing, I don't know if that's actually the right choice. Nice. Yes, that's it. Yeah, I've had to say the same thing. Uh, yes, that works really well because that's the story they're telling. But you want to say something different. You want people to feel something different about you. You need to make a different choice. Yeah. Right. Did you take semiotics at NASCAD? Yes. That, yeah. that had such a huge uh, influence on me. I recommend it to 
everybody that uh, I meet that's still uh, studying graphic design. Uh, Hannah Elise's class on semiotics was uh, was a real game changer. I'm not sure I would be as good at my job as I am today if I hadn't taken that class. Yeah, the the language you used just now was all semiotics, and uh, yes. I for me is the same thing. It it completely changed my my life and my view on everything that I work on design and big shout out to Hanno. He was, uh, yeah. he was definitely a game changer for me. Yeah. 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 I, um, I don't know what, what career I would have had if I hadn't had him as my very first professor at NASCAD. Um, yeah. He really opened my eyes. Very first. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I have a, a Hanno story. So I was in a semiotics class and I was, I don't know, maybe one or two years away from graduating. I mm-hmm. loved the class, but I was not, I was, I, I was not doing so well grade wise. Uh-huh. And, um, but like in terms of the class discussion, I was like, I was on it. I was always yeah. active and had things to say. And he was always like, yeah, that was a good, that was a good insight, whatever. Nice. Um, and then <laughs> About halfway through the term, he's like, he wanted to have a meeting with me. And he gave me this pink slip that said, um, I should drop out of the class. And I had a a 30% average in in the class. I still have the pink slip to this day. Oh, my gosh. And um, I, you know what? I appreciate, that told me that he cared because... He took me aside and he said, look, Dwayne, like you're, you're an intelligent guy. You have some of the best insights in this class. You not doing well is not, um, it doesn't even make sense. So, you know, what can we do to, to get you, you know, succeeding more? And mm-hmm. it really just, it gave me an opportunity to think about, you know, how I'm taking this information in and how I'm translating it and stuff like that. So I was able to pull my grades up and yes. and get through it. So, like, I always sort of credit Hanno with um, giving me that encouragement when I yeah. at times didn't think I could possibly do certain things. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, shout out to Hanno. Wonderful. Yeah. Back, um, I had a professor like that too, actually, that really turned things around for me. I um, I started actually in engineering at uh, Dalhousie and uh, – it was around the same time I discovered uh, drinking and partying and I was doing really yep. badly. I took a couple of years off and uh, I came back and I had this professor um, of thermodynamics, uh, Dr. Retallick, and he sat us all down and he was like, do the homework, pay attention in class. And when it comes to the exams, it's going to be so much easier. You know, you don't have to sit up all night trying to learn three months of work in like one evening. You'll already know it all and you're just reviewing. Uh, And he talked quite a bit. He took a whole class just to talk about how much better our lives will be if we just do the work now, pay attention, take the notes, do our homework. And I tried it and it just turned my life around. So by the time I got to NASCAD, I was like glasses and pocket protector and super keen and uh, <laughs> worked my ass off. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's true. Like it's once you actually learn how your mind works, I think that's why I struggled in high school and you probably were similar. Um, mm-hmm. It's like once you actually understand how your brain metabolizes information better and uh, find a process that works for you, then you can really start to excel. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. So when you um, like are looking for work, how is it? How do you find clients now? So I'll take it. I'll take it a step back. Mm-hmm. COVID nineteen happens. Yeah. What happened? What happened to your work? Like as as COVID nineteen went down. So things got really quiet for me. Um, so people are buying online for their groceries suddenly, uh, or they're just going in the store really fast, really nervous. And the big grocery stores chains said, we're not buying any new products anymore. So all my clients got their projects canceled. Hmm. Um, and so suddenly I don't have any work left. I was lucky that I had two big projects from a uh, local brewery. Uh, so they're not in the grocery stores. Um, and so those projects kept going. So I had time to really focus on them. Mm-hmm. But every other project that I had just collapsed. They're just starting to come back online now. Um, this week, actually, I've had the, the phone's been ringing like crazy. But uh, I had two months of uh, pretty quiet times. Mm. Is it? times like that where like having a business is scary because that 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 scares me to death to think about stuff like that yeah you you know um i remember the first time it happened like like when i first first started in my living room in montreal by myself um and uh there was like no work coming in and a friend of mine who had been a freelancer a lot longer said don't worry about it there's always gonna be times like this enjoy them work on your personal projects, uh, uh, relax, catch up on your sleep, and uh, things will balance out. She was right. And each time there's a slow period, I panic. Even now, like 15 years into my career, I still start to panic a little. But um, it always does kind of balance out. And now I've been doing it for so long. There's not a lot. And I'm so specialized, too. There's not a lot of people in Canada that do what I do. Mm-hmm. So got uh, a pretty good reputation it's a small market so now i don't really have to worry most of the companies that call me they're like i saw this uh or i talked to so and so uh they said you did it um and uh, i've got a good reputation for for being easy to work with so yeah now now i know don't usually pandemics aside i don't usually have to worry about that got you so yeah. Like, yeah, you're you're not necessarily out banging down doors for clients at this point. No, I haven't looked for a client uh, maybe in about five or six years. I'd say I'm kind of bragging a little, but that was a huge relief when we got to get got to the point where we didn't have to search for clients anymore. It was really really nice. Yeah. So how does so we we have some young designers listening? How how is it that one searches for new clients? Um, I think uh, if a graphic designer is looking for new clients, for me, what really helped was being specialized. Uh, that way I'm not competing against every single person out there. Um, also, trying not to be a, an art star or a prima donna really helps. Putting the, the ego aside um, uh, and... Um, making the client feel comfortable, making the client feel like you're somebody that they can, that they will want to work with. Cause that's in the end, the biggest thing, like no matter how, how good your portfolio is or how trendy it is or how many awards you've won, 
most of the clients aren't going to know good design from bad design. They just need something and they want to work with somebody who's nice. So uh, as long as you are like professional and uh, reliable um, and efficient, they're going to be pretty happy with, with you. Mm. Gotcha. Uh, so when I first started, um, I wasn't uh, I wasn't cheap to work with, you know. I, I didn't have like super low prices, but I was super reliable. I never missed deadlines. I always uh, showed up well dressed. Uh, I, I was a designer, but I was a businessman first, and so the clients felt comfortable with me. They felt confident that things were going to get done. Um, and I made mistakes, but I would always own up to them. I would say, "Yeah, this uh, I'm going to be late on this because of this. I'm really sorry." And so I didn't leave them hanging. Um, they always knew where they could reach me, and so then they would refer me to somebody else. Yeah, I had a good work experience with this guy. Uh, I'd send them to you. So things built from there. Mm-hmm. So when you you said your prices were a little more expensive, like how did you base that on? Was it basically you talking to other designers in the industry to say this is what you should be charging, or did you just kind of know this is what I think my worth is? No, I did it. I did that calculation that they taught us in school, which is like this is how much money I need to earn a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, this is how many hours I can work. This is the percentage of hours, working hours that are going to be billable. Mm-hmm. Um, so therefore this is how much I need to charge. And then I would try, uh-huh. uh, maybe somebody says, no, that's way too expensive. Or somebody else says yes, but way too quickly. Uh, and then I know I can need to make some adjustments. Uh, if I start losing a lot of projects, then I think maybe I need to adjust my prices. Um, and just kind of going, going on it from there. So I know what my hourly rate needs to be nowadays. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I, I work around it, but then at the same time, like I said, there's not a lot of people that do what I do. And so, so sometimes clients will come to me and they'll say, look, I've talked to two other, uh, two other design agencies, two other specialists. Um, and I'll say, okay, if you don't mind me asking, how much are they charging? Especially when I don't get the contract, I'll ask them like, uh, Mm -hmm. If they tell me they're not going to work with me, I say, look, hey, uh, why not? If they say, well, it was price. I want to work with you, but the other guys are cheaper. Okay, how much? And I'll always ask. Mm. Uh, they won't always answer, but it, that kind of information really helps. And then I adjust from there. Got you. That's smart. I'm like too, I'm too uh, reserved. I never asked that question. I probably should. It definitely, like being like really frank, uh, about talking about money helps. When I first started, uh, I was so shy about talking about money that I would like start working for a client without ever discussing prices, um, without ever even signing a contract. And I get shafted so many times. Like afterwards, the client would be like, what? I didn't think I'd be paying this much. Yeah. So I, I learned that like, actually, I'm good at what I do. It's worth money. They're willing to pay money. If they're not willing to pay the money, somebody else will be. I don't want to work with that person. So this is what I charge. This is what it's going to be. So when clients come to me now, we'll have a, uh, like a, just kind of a, an informal phone call to talk about the project, to talk about the timelines, what their needs are, whether or not I'm the right person for them, whether they're the right person for me. And at the end, I'll just say, hey, look, this is a tough question. You don't have to answer it, but do you have an idea of what your budget is for this kind of a project? Right. And some of them say, yeah, it's this is what I want to spend. A lot of them will say, I've never done this before. I've never worked with somebody like you. 
I don't know how much it's going to be. And I'll tell them, well, it's roughly in this ballpark. And then I wait and I'll see, you know, and if there's like a silence after I mention that number, then I know I need to do some adjusting downwards. Sometimes they're just like, oh yeah, okay, that's fine. And then I know we're good. Mm, gotcha. So yeah. when I, when I look at your work, and mm -hmm. well, I think I know the answer to this already based on what you said about you liking to be involved in sort of the entire process. Yeah. Um, sometimes I'm not necessarily sure how to handle it when I have a project that there's a, a logo type or a logo involved and then there's packaging or posters or some other design elements. Do you price the logo work separately or do you price it all as part of the visual identity uh well with the food packaging um i break it down into three things the first part is the research i have a researcher who specializes in lists um yeah. so she'll look into uh what's happening in the market what the competitors are doing then the second part will be the branding which is like the ideas that underlie the, uh, the, 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 the product. So, um, how we want people to feel, uh, about the product, uh, what words we want to say, uh, and the logo will happen in there. And then the third part is on the graphic design on the packaging. So, uh, the logo just kind of happens in there, uh, mm -hmm. in the branding section. Got you. Got you. Did that answer your question? I, I... No, it did. It, okay. So it seems like, well, at least from my interpretation of it, is that the logo is naturally integrated into that process. Um, yeah. Because sometimes I've, I guess the way I, reason I was asking that is because I've heard people uh, do certain things like, I design a logo, so that means I have, don't negotiate rights to using it in other products that sell or something like that or negotiating mm -hmm. percentages of of it and all that kind of stuff and of, of sales of future items and stuff like that i don't um, know that gets complicated and i don't know how that even works but yeah i'm uh, i'm not good at that kind of thing uh i create the brand for them and then when they're uh i make it easy for them my idea is i just want it to be easy for me and easy for them and then next year, when they're ready to come out with a second product, they call me again because mm -hmm. I'm the guy that made it easy and I charge them a second time for the second product. And uh, the, the year after that, they'll come back with a third one and, oh, we want to do a few more flavors. And, oh, now we're doing a, a drink. And, and they just keep coming back because it was easy. Um, I don't think I want to keep track of, of percentages of this and that. I'm not a lawyer and I'm not like with numbers. <laughs> Do you ever um, hand over your working files? Is that is that a thing you do? Uh, no, it's right in my contract uh, that they get uh, print files. Mm -hmm. um, they don't get the working files. Um, and, and honestly, they don't need the working files. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've had a few instances where clients want them. Yeah, yeah. yeah I've had clients ask. Yeah. So it, that's always a dicey, dicey thing for me. Yeah, um, and I started putting it right in the contract in one of the sections that says, like, these are the deliverables. This is what you get. This is what you don't get. So there's no misunderstanding. And if, they, if they're if they picky about it, I'll explain. It's like, it's like you go to a restaurant um, and you order a meal. You get that meal. But afterwards, 
you don't get to go to the chef and say, okay, but I also want the recipe and all the ingredients to make it. Mm -hmm. Right. This is it. Yeah. Yeah. You get that final deliverable. That's it. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. And for my clients, most of the time, that's all they need. When they want other things, uh, I'll usually do it for them. Um, sometimes they, they might say, look, we're hiring a graphic designer to, to do a whole bunch of little things. But I'm where I'm creating the brand as well as the packaging, I'm also usually making a style guide with all of the elements. So there's a logo package. Here's all your colors. Here's all your type. Uh, here's all your fun files. Here's all your patterns. So I'm giving them all of that stuff too. Mm. So I can just give that to the uh, other graphic designer that they've hired now. Mm -hmm. And along with the style guide, they're then able to create whatever they need. Got you. Got you. So if there's any piece of advice you would give an up a designer or creative who's looking to pursue a freelance lifestyle, what would you give them? Things have changed a lot now. Um, when I started, we didn't have social media, Instagram and Pinterest and all of that. So maybe I'm a little out of touch. But the things that I know that worked best were to really focus uh, on the business side as well. Um, maybe don't spend too much time building a beautiful portfolio on Behance or on, on Instagram because your clients aren't there. They're, you're sharing those with your peers, but your peers aren't hiring you. Um, Put your effort into your website, for instance, your personal website, because that's what clients are going to see. Put your effort in LinkedIn, of all things, because that's what the client sees. Um, and make sure that you know the business side of things really well. Have a good contract. Don't be shy about making sure your client signs that contract. Um, pay a lawyer uh, once to go over that contract the first time and make sure everything's right in it. You can pull all the pieces, uh, off the, the web. You can find all the different pieces you need, put them all together, get a lawyer to clean it up, uh, and then make sure that you always have that, but be good at that, that the business side about talking about money side. Uh, don't be shy to reach out to people. Don't be shy to reach out to your whole network and say, look, I'm looking for work. And definitely when you're meeting with a client, don't be shy to talk about the money. Mm. Yeah, it's great advice. I don't think um, you're too out of touch in terms of that advice because the Instagram and all that is great. It's fun, but you're right. Like the clients generally aren't there unless you just happen to be lucky and um, yeah. say you're like, your client happens to stumble across you in some way or they're in street fashion or something like that. And that's where they are. But yeah, um, that's, that's typically not where the business goes down. Yeah. I mean, I know a friend that's become a, a kind of a superstar with his design work on, on Instagram and he's super well known and um, around the world uh, and he gets a lot of work that way, but that is super rare. Yeah. Uh, to be honest, uh, I um, nobody knows who I am. Uh, I'm, I'm completely un unknown, and I make a really, really good living at what I do doing this because I'm, I mean, I'm not putting the, the time and effort into the Instagram or uh, or into Behance or, or or and whatnot. I'm putting my effort into where the clients are, so the clients know me. Um, my peers might not know me as well, but that it's, it's I'm putting the effort in where it counts. Yeah, I, I think this is something that I, I would really like young designers 
to be aware of actually, because it's great to have a huge following and all of that kind of stuff. And that validation feels good, but ultimately those followers aren't necessarily buying from you. That's so, it. you know, yeah, it's like you're, you're getting paid in dopamine, but uh, dopamine <laughs> can't pay rent. Uh, That's nice. I like that. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's yeah. a lot of people with very, very large Instagram followings who are barely paying the bills. So yeah, that's be, it. Be aware. Yeah. And sometimes that kind of Instagram fame is really just about like, you've got a style and maybe for some reason out of your control, it just happens to catch on and you get big, but it's really luck. You can yeah. put a lot of work into it and you can be just as good as somebody who gets famous and you won't get that recognition. And neither of you, the one with recognition and the one without, is actually getting any money out of it. So maybe it's it's not really uh, uh, it's it's not worth it. Hmm. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. So, Sunil, is there anything you have going on that you want to promote, or is it just kind of like smooth sailing for you here? <laughs> um. I, I, gosh, uh, I don't have any like personal art projects these days. I'm embarrassed to admit this. Um, I, uh, on the side, I do like sketching. I, I do word puzzles and I kind of make film puppets, but uh, nothing that uh, I want to really promote. They're just my own hobbies. Um, so that would be, uh, that would be about it. I guess if you want to have uh, funny tweets, follow me on Twitter, but uh, <laughs> All right, drop your uh, Twitter link. Uh, It's at Sunil Sarwal. Okay, and um, what's your website? The website is The Small Monsters, with an S at the end, thesmallmonsters.com. Okay, great. So, yeah, check out his work. It's it's phenomenal. It's on his website. It's not on Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) And check out those tweets. And, um, yeah, Sunil, thank you for taking the time to do this. Thank you so much. This is great. Thank you so much for listening to the Art Pays Me podcast. Thank you to Langey Beats for the theme music. If you got anything out of this show, please rate, review, and subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. The more you do this, the more reach the podcast gets, and the more artists I can help learn to make a living at what they love. If you want to know more about what I do, hit me up at artpaysme.com or at ArtPaysMe on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Pinterest. See y'all next time.